This year's primary election, registered voters need to watch for their ballots arriving by mail in late July. Following the instructions, seal your ballot in the envelope provided and be sure to sign the back. Envelopes without your signature will not be accepted. Look for your free elections guide in the newspaper or at these locations statewide. There are no polling places. So be sure to mail your ballot at least five days prior to election day. Hawaii Hawaii votes by by mail. And Hawaii does vote by mail. We want to mahalo the Office of Elections for helping to sponsor this conversation. This, of course, is Spotlight Hawaii, brought to you by the Honolulu Star Advertiser and the Office of Elections. Good morning. I'm Yanji Denise, joined by Ryan Kalesuji. That's why we want to thank all of you for tuning in. It, it has been quite an exciting and eventful past few days here in Hawaii, of course, with uh, Hurricane Douglas that safely passed the state. Uh, but now again, we return our focus back on to COVID-19 and somebody who has been uh, very active in this and, and really trying to get the word out and helping to educate the public, of course, has been our Lieutenant Governor Josh Green, who joins us as our special guest today. Uh, we are joined once again by Lieutenant Governor. Great to see you. Uh, it's been about a month since we last saw you. There's been a lot of development since the last time that we spoke. Uh, you know, about a month ago, we were talking about reopening the state, how important it was for the economy. Clearly, things have changed. Uh, what are your thoughts right now on where we are at as a state with these recent numbers? Well, thank you for including me. Uh, a month ago, we had 839 cases 30 days ago, and today we have 1,758. So we've doubled our number of cases in the last 30 days. Uh, it took us five months to get to 800, and then it took us one month to get to 1,700. So it gives you an idea of the impact and how quickly things can uh, geometrically increase. So now we are kind of hunkering down again. This is a, a concern, of course, because let me speak as a physician mostly. For every 100 cases, we get 10 individuals that go into the hospital. And for every 65 cases that we are able to detect, one person dies in, in our state. So as you see these surges, it's not an abstraction. It's it's very real. And we can then look at what's going on in our hospitals and our intensive care units on on ventilators and so on and calculate exactly what the impact is. So when we talk about these numbers, we're also able to say, well, what do we have to do next? How, how can we make things safer? And where, where do the priorities have to be? Yes, a month ago at the end of June, we were looking very hard at being able to open up trans-Pacific travel with minimal risk, with a test and so on. And of course, schools in August, on August 4th. Now, we just have to be responsible. We have to be sensible because, number one, health has to come first, and our kupuna's health particularly, because that's where the greatest risk is. And then, two, you have to be pragmatic. How many people will actually send their kids to school if there's cases like I'm reflecting on the whiteboard today? Or how many people would actually even consider coming to on any trip, not just Hawaii, if you are looking at large surges in you know, California, Texas, Arizona, and then those travelers coming here. So all of these are considerations. You're going to see some significant changes, I think, this week, and we can talk about those. But that's how things have changed. And today we have 47 cases. That number's, you know, just beginning to pop. And we had, let me tell you, we had 1,172 tests. So 4% of our individuals that were tested exactly tested positive. That's a higher rate than we've been seeing. Uh, previously. We were typically seeing closer to 1.2, 1.3% of all tests be positive. 
with the surge we've been seeing between four and five percent. So there are more cases out there and there's more risk. So we have to be even more careful for our people. Um, let's get to some questions. We want to jump in there right away. Uh, Diane, Diana wants to know, kindly ask, is it likely that the inter-island quarantine will be restored? What kind of changes, you know, you spoke about perhaps having some adjustments, bars, restaurants, gyms, what are we looking at? And, and of course, Diana's question about inter-island quarantine. Well, thank you, Diana, for that question. That's not where I'd put my, my priority this week. Uh, we've had very, very few cases. In spite of the the surge of cases over the last, um, well, the last two weeks and the, the last whole month. It's been a big surge this week, too. Uh, very, very few cases have occurred on the neighbor islands. We still have not had any fatalities, knock wood, on, on Big Island, for example. We've had only one or two cases typically in most of the other counties, so in a day. So there's not been a big surge, even though we've had free travel between, between counties from Oahu maybe 95% of the cases have occurred on Oahu in the recent past. So I really wouldn't focus there. Instead, I would focus on some other things right now. Because remember, you, you can only do so many things and even attempt to do them well at one time. We, it was problematic to have a hurricane roll through here and a small earthquake, but that's past now. So let's forget about that and go on to COVID, right? Now we see that you have to decrease the size of gatherings. The first thing I would say, and I do expect this to become a reinstituted policy, is that there should be no gatherings indoors or out more than 10 people, period. Should not gather with more than 10 people, and it really should be your own kind of bubble, your own uh, uh, home or, you know, where you are, not just your family, because your family could be spread out all over the place, right? Like my family, I got family in Hilo, Kaneohe, downtown. So it really should be at your home or your close bubble who should get together. And don't get don't get all crazy over right now first birthday parties or anything else because you will spread it and that's a problem. So that's the number one policy change that should be reinstituted. Uh, everyone should be wearing masks. That never changed at all. If you're uh, indoors or out around people outside of your immediate cohort, your immediate uh, bubble and circle, you have to be wearing a mask if you want to keep the cases down. We did see some research coming uh, internationally the other day, and it's that. Uh, when, when it's mask to mask, okay, so if I'm wearing a mask and my chief of staff uh, is wearing a mask, you know, five, six feet away from me, the likelihood if one of us is positive is only 1.5% that we're going to transmit it. But if we sat there all day and didn't have masks on, it's about 70%. So it tells you how important masks are. And that's really something I want to convey to people today. And then we will start talking about other other issues I know it's going to come up. Uh, I heard that the mayor was considering, and I, I don't want to put words in his mouth, considering some changes at restaurants and bars. So I'll, I'll let him announce those kind of things. I think probably the best thing to do is approach those kind of issues with a more of a scalpel rather than a sledgehammer. Because most restaurants and most bars have been very careful. Even most gyms have been very careful and not seen spread. But when there are outliers and people aren't following the rules, I think that's when you come in and you, you know, suspend them for a period of time. And I think that that's probably a better first approach. It's very difficult because disrupting people's lives has consequences, but so do having 47 cases in a day. The average has been 35 cases a day for the last 30 days. It's too many for our Department of Health to keep track of over time. 
So when you are calling for the, uh, you know, no more than 10 gathering, that would essentially shut down a lot of these businesses, right? Because, uh, you know, restaurants wouldn't be able to adhere to that 10 or 10 or uh, more uh, stores and gyms. Uh, so could we continue, would that be something that we would essentially see if we do see this 10 or uh, no groups of t more than 10, you know, reinstated? I think that you'd have to be, first of all, let me, I'm supposed to give a clear clarification that would separate schools. Schools are going to have their own policy and We'll see what they come up with this Thursday at the Board of Education. I'm sure we'll have a whole conversation about that alone. But uh, I think some restaurants are going to lean towards more outdoor dining so that they're not clustered in one spot. I think also the question is, uh, is it, you know, one or two groups of 10 in a restaurant up to that max? It's really your group. So you're staying socially distanced, just like more than 10 people can go to the beach, but they have to be separated. So your cluster of people that are commingling would just be 10. And so that's why I wouldn't really even get into affecting businesses just yet, because most of the spread appears to be in social gatherings at events that people just kind of have with many individuals that are not in their close circle. And so that's how the spreads occurred. My my understanding of what happened was we hit July 4th weekend and we had a lot of activity. Um, there was not adequate social distancing or mask wearing that set off a bunch of small fires okay it kind of sent out like um sparks all over the place to extend the metaphor from fourth of july and then those little sparks some of them turned into localized fires so sparks became one case going here one case going there one case going there and then there's family spread and community spread within people's circles and then it became three and four cases per site and we've seen a lot of that. We have, of course, seen some larger, you know, explosions of cases. We're now worried about a, kind of a, a cluster in Kalihi with the Micronesian community. Um, there's been a little bit of spike there and subsequent hospitalization. But that's really where I would go. And I would keep it simple. I, I would say really clearly to people, do not gather in groups of more than 10 and wear your mask at all times, unless you're home, okay? If you do those two things, we will contain the virus pretty darn well. And there's a lot of other stuff we could talk about, but leave that to Department of Health. They need to trace people. They need to do more testing. We have, our hospitals are, you know, up to par, we're ready, but our own personal responsibility has to be about those decisions. Let's get to uh, something you touched on briefly, which was schools. Philip says, I work for a school system. I'm not feeling safe to go work back to work. But what can I do? I need my job. As you mentioned, the, uh, the, the school board is going to be having a meeting to possibly delay school from August 4th to the 17th. That happens on Thursday. Um, but what, you know, if, if, as Ryan said, we're talking about 10 or less, 10 or less in a classroom. I mean, how does this practically work, given the constraints the school system is already under pre-COVID? Yeah, it's a, it's a great, great problem. So here, here's what I would recommend. If anyone, Philip, you included, of course, if anyone feels that it's unsafe to go back to work, then you should not be forced to go back to work. We have to find a way for you to work from a distance or at different hours when there's not people. Like Philip could be a teacher. If he's a teacher and he's, let's say he's got lung disease or he feels it's unsafe to go back to work for, for lack of testing or lack of safety, we have to be fair to him. If he's, let's say he's a janitor, we have to give him different hours to be respectful of him. Everyone's gonna to have to be understanding, this is probably a six month process until we finally get toward a vaccination, till we get 
maybe out of the woods for this infection. That's what we have to be understanding about. And it's going to be more difficult to educate our kids. I have two kids, one in public school, one in private school. It's very difficult. But we're anticipating sending them back as long as the protocols are good. I also know, however, that the Department of Education is talking about distance learning. And that's one of the debating uh, kind of rallying cries is whether or not to go to full distance learning until the until the surge is done. I can't comment. I, uh, I don't know yet what people want. I think we have to be respectful of parents and teachers because children, though their illness is not significant, it's, it's tended to be very, very mild. They can spread the disease if they're positive. And that means they come back and spread it to their dad, you know, or their mom, or they spread it to their teacher. And then we in turn spread it to our, you know, our parents, our kapuna in the community. So it all is, it's all very difficult. And I don't personally think that the expectation that kids are going to stay in bubbles is reasonable. Those bubbles are going to burst. Mm -hmm. First of all, young kids, right? You've got some beautiful young kids. They, those kids are going to play. You can't tell them to wear masks. They just won't listen. I mean, it's, it's not their fault. They're under age eight, it's very difficult to get a lot of compliance if your kids are anything like mine were, okay? And then on top of that, teenagers are going to go and make out and they're going to spread it. That's what they do. And we're not going to change human nature tomorrow. See, Ryan, I, I know. <laughs> you know? so, so I mean, it is very hard to change human behavior. And you're right. I mean, I didn't even think about the teenage aspect because I have a, you know, an almost two year old and an almost four year old. So my eyes are on them. But you're right. I mean, I can't get my four year old to wear a mask for more than just the 30 seconds in the elevator. And that's all I can negotiate. That's right. And then they pick in their boogers and they're touching everything and they're going to spread it. And that's Look, that's human nature. That's how these viruses evolve and, and that's how they spread, right? We all know uh, from the experiences we've had sending our kids to preschool, when you're sending your kids to preschool, you can expect that the family unit is always sick. They always had colds. That's what happens. And then you get immune to that and so on, which is good, except that coronavirus will kill you. So not so good, right? So we have to be much, much more careful. And that's why the school plan has to be First of all, you have to expect there's going to be some spread amongst the young ones. But then, um, you know, you guys are young. It, it wouldn't it wouldn't affect you per se. You'd be fine. But there have been some in, uh, instances where, like, I had a 51 year old friend I mentioned once before who passed away, and mm -hmm. it just it hit him. He was a reporter and gone seven days later. Great guy. So it can happen. And then, of course, as we know, if people are you know beyond 75 years old, the, the mortality rate goes way up. So all these things are considerations. And also keep in mind, if we do open schools, a lot of times it's only going to be part time, right? Which means if parents are working, then grandparents may be forced into a circumstance where they're helping to take care of our keiki. And that's very risky because we're just asking for spread to our kapuna. And that is not what we want. So it creates many different problems. I just think we're going to have to accept that the sky's not gonna fall if we have to go slow on education and go slow on reopening. We will have to produce some extra resources for people. We'll talk about that, I'm sure, about what the federal government's planning to do and how the state can you know, manage things financially. Because I am still very, very worried about what happens to people uh, when resources come down from the unemployment standpoint, whether, whether or not people can afford their housing, whether or not they can have food, 
good sustenance. All those things are absolutely real problems right now. Uh, we need some more support from the federal government. That's what the feds are for, for big crises. We don't want them meddling with us most of the time, but for big crises like this, we need help. You know, we heard just breaking news a moment ago that there has been an employee that uh, reported uh, positive at the Costco at Ivile. We heard yesterday about an employee at Foodland. Uh, you know, as this continues to spread, we'll hear more and more of these establishments, bars, restaurants, uh, and stores that have these employees that are testing positive. What would be your recommendation to some of the co consumers and customers of these, um, you know, establishments? Would you recommend that people start journaling down where they visit uh, as more and more of these pace, uh, cases become positive to just try to keep track? Because uh, it's difficult to remember what day you went to here and there. And if you had contact, I mean, and uh, there's only, I know, so much contact tracers that the state has. What can people do maybe to help protect themselves and their families? Well, you make many good points there. To the extent that you can, you do larger shopping visits and fewer of them. That's always very smart. That's a, that's a good strategy. I'm not too worried about individuals who went through Costco or, or Walmart or wherever for a, a shopping trip in general if they were smart and they wore their mask. And there's people at the stores right now, I, I've noticed myself when I was in Safeway the other day, they were like, hey, Green, that mask fell off your big nose there. You better do something about that. And I was like, oh, man. Okay, so back up it went. But the main deal is if you've worn a mask and you've been in contact with other people for less than 15 minutes and they're wearing a mask, your likelihood of, of being infected is almost zero. So as long as you're adhering to social distancing and wearing masks, you should go do your shopping, go out, do whatever you got to do. You're at much greater risk, actually, of having a, a family barbecue with 10 people. Some of them have been with other people, you know, out at work or in conversations or whatever. That's much higher risk. So I wouldn't worry too much about those basic uh, life needs. But we are mindful. Uh, it, there are other circumstances that are more worrisome. The longer you have time face to face with people. So grocery stores, it's fast. You know, you get you're in line, you're six feet apart. You go up to the cashier. They got the plastic thing up. You're just not going to be catching it from them almost at all. It's extremely unlikely. The time you're going to catch it is if, you know, you spend 30 or 40 minutes sitting too close to somebody on on a, uh, you know, on, at a table or at work or wherever. If you're spending a half hour, an hour, and you let yourselves get too close or the people refuse to wear a mask, if one person's sick, then the other person's going to get sick. That's how it goes. So keep those things in mind. The main advice, though, in this case is if you are sick, have any symptoms whatsoever, upper respiratory symptoms, cough, fever, shortness of breath, anything that could be COVID, don't go to work. Don't go to school. Those are very, very important principles to maintain because that alone can cut out probably 80% of all the cases. Um, looking at a lot of questions here, there's still a lot of questions, of course, about school, and I think that hopefully we get more clarity after um, after Thursday. But this is an interesting one. Henry wants to know, after schools reopen, what's the trigger for a school to close down? One or two cases? Is it numerical? What should parents and business owners be aware of when this kind of event happens? We've seen, for instance, you know, Ryan uh, brought up the Foodland. I know Costco was in the news today. There's other establishments. When they get a case, they tend to shut down, do a deep clean, uh, quarantine when they can. I, just, that, that just doesn't seem realistic for schools to shut the whole school down, shut down an entire campus and deep clean. Would that be realistic? Is that something that they're looking at? I don't think that'd be realistic, but I could see classes being suspended. For that bubble so if if one or two kids end up 
sick in a classroom and they've been in that class bubble with all of their peers, that's when they could all have to go home and wait out until they got tested or at least confirm that they didn't have symptoms. So I think you're going to see that. You're, you're actually seeing some early advanced experiences of that with like athletics teams, you know, professional or amateur. When a couple people get sick, that whole team has to kind of shut down. We'll think of it in those terms. If you've been in a classroom, say with you have your child and another 14 children and the teacher and the aide, if a couple of them become sick, everyone's pretty much at, at higher risk. This is what is going through the, the brains of our family members, right? They're saying to themselves, do I take that risk for three days on campus or even some half days knowing full well that we may have to pull back? Uh, the schools are just going to have to go kind of carefully case by case. Although I do think there should be an absolute standard from the Department of Health in writing without a question, how much testing is available, how much tracing is available for each of the schools and the teachers. And what is the case? If we have a case, is it you get an alert and then that next day, of course, that child will not be, you know, in school. But does everyone else have to spend a week away? Because remember, it's, it's five to six days, just over five days for the incubation period on average. But it can go longer. And if you really want to know for sure that someone is not infectious after being in a close, um, close exposure, close contact, the rule is 14 days. If, uh, you know, if, if your significant other shows up at home and tells you they just tested positive, then you're, you're both facing 14 days away from everything. And that's, you know, that's what it takes to be sure. You know, we continue to get a lot of questions uh, that are coming in about travel and opening up Hawaii once again. Uh, you know, when, what do you think is the realistic timeline for that? Do you see that September 1st sort of targeted date being pushed back now because of the high cases? Uh, and also, if you can comment to yesterday, the announcement of Hawaii being uh, on the clearance list for Japan and, and what that could mean for the state in reopening. So, yeah, so let's do some good news, bad news. OK, the good news is it appears that Japan is poised to welcome us as a partner again. Uh, historically, Japan does between 15 to 20 percent of all of our travelers and 30 percent of all the economic activity, which actually could go up because I expect people to come when they do trips and do them longer. Uh, given the amount of work that you have to do to get tested, the amount of time it takes mm -hmm. to plan your trip, and the amount of time people have not been able to travel for a while, for six months, I think we're going to get longer trips. I think economically they're going to be very active here. I think people will be spending. Also, there's a lot of good deals. So I think Japan is going to open, actually, and I think it's going to open smoothly, and I don't think we're going to see it and any increase whatsoever because it's such a um, respectful, thoughtful, and meticulous uh, culture about these kind of things. I think we're going to be fine. And we're also working very hard to make sure that we have good testing available on the front end for them and lots and lots of screening if necessary here. So that's good. The bad news is September 1st, from a practical standpoint, we're going to have to see what happens first with the schools and with these cases. I know that that's the way the governor uh, and General Hara and everyone is thinking. We don't want to open up just to you know, the, the kind of travelers that we don't want, which are irresponsible travelers that come for the cheapest of flights that feel invulnerable. That's what we drew some attention from when we talked about the initial reopening. And we are worried still about the number of cases in a lot of different parts of, of the country. So I think it's going to be Japan first. 
I think that we can continue to do staycations and whatnot here. Jamie and I did a long weekend with our kids because we want obviously not to go to the mainland and we wanted to spend our money here with, with local businesses. So we did that. It was very gratifying. Actually, they were wonderful here. And um, it's just the kind of thing that we're going to have to get used to for a while. I think that it's also difficult because right now the length of time to get a test is increased on the mainland. Everyone, the standard is basically three days, three day window. I have worked out an agreement with, uh, in principle, with several people. CVS, Walgreens, and Kaiser will all be willing to do tests for travel, which will help a lot. And then if you arrive here and you don't have your test result, you'll still be able to come out of quarantine after you get your test result. I've also worked now uh, with another organization that can do mail-in tests, and we're still waiting for some of the approvals, but for just a cheek swab, it'd be $150, but it would um, be something you get mail-in within three days. But all across the globe, frankly, it's still difficult to get testing. And I think that that's pretty important. Um, well, if, if September 1st is not the day, and um, for all the reasons that you laid out, obviously it sounds like that's probably not gonna happen. Uh, that means that a lot of people are still going to be out of work. And even with the opening, uh, they could be out of work. As we know, the federal plus up ends this week. That $600 a week is going away. And there's still a lot of squabbling in Washington over what the next package could look like. So there will be that gap. What are you most concerned about when it comes to people who have been relying on that money and have been able to pay their rent or their mortgage or their car payment, what have you, um, in that interim before you know the federal government decides on whatever that plus up will be, if there will be one? I'm most worried about people's um, state of mind, honestly, right now. I'm worried that the pressures of survival, specifically food insecurity and housing insecurity, weigh very, very heavily on people. That's what my largest personal concern is right now. It's causing marital strife, it's causing despair, and it's, it's just a great challenge. And those are not things to trifle with. I do think that the federal government will approve a plan to do about 200 to $300 extra per week. So in addition to Hawaii, $600 a week, it'll be closer to 800 or $900 a week. You can do the math very simply, of course. So people will end up getting you know, about 3,200 or 3,500, depending how, how much the feds come in with per person to survive on. It's not easy, but that will be what we have. And we're also gonna put in some significant amount of resources for people who are housing unstable. So rent subsidies for several months from the legislature here, if people are near to losing their apartment or their home. So we'll have to do that. I think that we may have to revisit the total amount of money that the state borrows we were eligible to borrow up to $2.3 billion from the federal government to get through this. We settled on somewhere between $750 and $900 million to borrow. Has to be paid back over three years at 1%. This is a way to spread out the um, concern and the crisis so that we don't hit each other too hard with decreased salaries, you know, decreased benefits, and so on. So essentially what I'm telling people is for every month that we extend, it's probably going to be six months to recover until we pay off debt, until we are able to get out of this. So if it's an extra four months where we don't have tourism, that's probably, you know, an extra two years it'll take to, to recover completely. Though I do believe that tourism is gonna come back somewhat fiercely once the world is clear of, of COVID-19 because there's such an incredible demand to come to a good place. Hawaii has, irrespective of what our numbers have been this last two weeks, way better than the rest of the world. And so we still are, compared to many, 
in a great spot. I know we're worried about it, but we, you know, knock wood, but we've, we have seen very few fatalities. We've still only been using about 12% of our ventilators and 45% of our intensive care unit beds, most of which, by the way, are not even from COVID. So we're doing well and we'll recover. I, I don't like to have to push back or see that happen because I know how people are suffering, but I can tell you what would be far worse would be a surge that we can't manage. I mentioned earlier once uh, to you that we had projections of the number of fatalities if we let the virus roll right over us. Well, that, that projection's on my board. And if I look over my shoulder there, it's 4,479. That's how many fatalities we were projecting if we allowed COVID to completely steamroll us and overwhelm our ICU beds and our ventilators. None, none of us can accept that. That's just that's tragic. That's not acceptable. That's what they saw in, in New York and other places, numbers by percentage like that. Too much. So we will be thankful later if we have to dig out of this over a longer period of time. Uh, but I, you know, my heart is sick when someone loses their business. Um, we have to give more help to small businesses and everyone's got to kind of keep it tight. People are saving their pennies now. And I, I think that's smart. You know, I want to go kind of go back to the reopening and that, that phase approach and, and talking about the testing to come into the state, uh, specifically for local residents, because I know that you'd mentioned that the partnerships with uh, other establishments like CVS and like Kaiser. Uh, but, you know, in reports, they're saying that you have to live in that state to get a testing done. So if you're in Hawaii and you're, say, visiting Nevada, uh, you're, you wouldn't necessarily be able to go to the Nevada at CVS to get that test, is from what I'm understanding. Uh, how would Hawaii residents uh enter this and come back to the state after travel and, and bypass that once you know we do sort of reopen it and get rid of the uh 14-day quarantine well that's the that's the deal i struck with them so that cvs walgreens and kaiser will allow uh anybody from any state to get tested uh if they're traveling there'll be a travel uh provision in their protocols so right now they have that because we haven't launched the program people say hey i went to CVS and they told me, no, I haven't heard about this yet. Well, that's because it hasn't started. But that is the contractual provision that we have with our partners that they would test. Now, if it's if it's taking five days to get the result back, it's too long, but, but you'd get the test. And then once you got your test result and you were negative, you would go out of quarantine. Of course, if you're positive, you're going to spend 14 days in, in home, home isolation as you get better. So that has been taken care of. That'll be the standard. Also, we're going to allow for mail-in tests. And I, and I believe personally that once we do kind of get to the point where people are traveling more and coming back, I do believe that we will allow people to get cleared here over time. I think that we're going to ramp up our testing, but we don't want to emphasize that right now. Instead, what we want to emphasize is for travelers, you get your test there because we want to save the number of tests we have here for clinical need. We at one point got up to as high as 6,000 tests we could do a day. We're now really, if we're being practical about it, closer to 3,000. We, we say 5,000, but given the shortage of reagents and the complexity of getting all the labs to run at full capacity, we can do about 3,000 tests a day. That's always more than we've needed, by the way. We've never had to test more than 2,300 people in a day anyway. But if we start opening schools or there's travel here, then those numbers could grow, go much higher. I have some good news on that front though. We're working very hard with our labs and, and our state lab to expand what's called pooling, which is where four or five people all get tested at once. 
the test is negative, all five people are negative, you're good. If it tests positive, you got to break it out and each person get tested again. But that is, uh, that's in the works. I have a conference call with them on Thursday, I think, Thursday, crack of dawn. And that could like triple or quadruple the number of tests that we could do, especially for screening. Like, let's say you wanted to screen a whole classroom or you wanted to screen maybe a whole school that had 600 people. You could do just 150 tests instead of 600 tests and essentially clear the place. They did. And they've had to test a lot of big facilities before, like Kona got tested recently. They didn't use pooling yet, but they probably could have. Um, I'm looking at the comments and I'm seeing a real division here. And I know this is an unpopular view, but I want to give people a chance. So um, Rugmini says, open up and deal with the disease. And there are some people who just feel like, forget it. I've had enough. Let's just take it. Why is this as a doctor? Obviously, we, I, I mean, I want you to address this because there's a lot of people who are in the comments right now saying, you know, why don't we just just deal with it? Uh, why is that not an option? not an option for a lot of reasons. One, we have a very significant challenge in the state of Hawaii, and that's that we have multi-generational housing. So we have the highest rate by a, like a full order of magnitude other than other places where we have our kapuna in our houses with us. And that means we would condemn them to extreme risk. That's one large reason we can't do it. The other reason is as a physician, I, you know, my responsibility is to do no harm to which people are going to now type, well, economic harm can lead to other challenges, which is true. But those are things that we can recover from. I can't bring you back to life. OK, so that's not possible. So that's the biggest one. Right. Also, we have a very small overall healthcare footprint. We are only a state of one point four million people. We have we have finite resources. We have. 244 intensive care unit beds and 450 some odd ventilators. If we surge behind beyond that, let's say you had a sudden surge for 1500 ventilators, a thousand people dead right there. And irrespective of your ability to otherwise provide healthcare, it would be unbelievable. That would also, for those who are interested in thinking this through, if you saw a, a large sudden surge, what do you think that would do to travel? It would vanish it. Okay. So if all of a sudden Hawaii entered into the world of those lists where Hawaii was blasted, like put a black mark on our state because the cases over overran us, no one would travel here. So it's a it's actually a, um, a specious argument, if I may. If you let it roll over us, you get no tourism and people die. If you don't let it roll over us, you have a capacity to gradually bring tourism back and people don't die. So. You have to really think it through. I do think that we should gradually open and safely. I do think bringing back the bubble with Japan and probably if they would allow it, New Zealand, Australia, and others where there's been almost no cases, you start approximating 30 to 40% of the tourism industry and you could bring unemployment down from its current level. Remember it came from 23% down to 13% when we opened up our local economy. You could probably get us back down to about 8% if you began to open up tourism. And then the rest of the individuals are either absorbed into other parts of the economy temporarily or, of course, we have support. But uh, the answer to straight up open up and kill a bunch of people ain't going to happen as long as I'm lieutenant governor.
All right, I know we, we thank you so much for your time and we've gone a little bit over. I just want to allow you maybe an opportunity to just final thoughts here and maybe what we can expect for the rest of the week. We know that you said early in the broadcast, we can expect to see some changes happening. Uh, any indication of what those things might come and maybe just sort of your final message here as we close things out. Sure, I, I think that the changes will be regarding social gatherings more than businesses at first. I think it'll be limiting our social gatherings to 10 or less. I think we have to be very mindful to not do any more large gatherings, no street fairs, no large gatherings in parks, none of that stuff for a few months. That's got to end. And then make sure everyone wears masks and socially distance, uh, distances themselves. Then for those who do want to open the state, and I'm very empathetic um, about the economic consequences, we open it up smart with bubbles that can be very, very safe, with extremely low rates of cases from other regions of the world. We do those things, we keep our hospitals fine, we get ourselves to a vaccination. There's at least three different companies that are now in phase three trials, which means that actually by the end of this calendar year, we could have a vaccination. And then I think we'll all be glad that we didn't expose our children or our kapuna to extreme risk. And that's, that's how I'm approaching it. I also think you're gonna get some significant clarity on schools by this Thursday. And if I were recommending to you, I, you know, have, have the teachers and the um, Department of Education people on Friday or Monday, that they'll be able to give you all the details, I think. Okay. Thank you so much, Lieutenant Governor Josh Green. We appreciate your time in answering all of these questions. We know there's a lot we didn't get to, and that's why we'll invite you back very soon. Thank, <laughs> thank, you. thank, thank you, you so much. Aloha. Well, Ryan, um, you know, the, the, the comments are going crazy uh, and we appreciate all of your passion out there. I know a lot of people have uh, opposing views and that's why I did ask that question. Why not just open it up? Because there are a significant number of comments who are just saying, forget it, I'm done with it. But as he said, uh, he can't revive you if you're dead. And the, um, the death rate with this disease is significant. And so, we, you know, we've got to wear our masks and socially distance and do everything we can so that we get to the point where we can actually receive those vaccines. Yeah. And, you know, you, you have to look at it from his standpoint as well. He not only is speaking from a public official as, uh, you know, lieutenant governor, but also as a doctor. And so he wears uh, these two hats, which in this situation is very unique for the state of Hawaii and really the nation to have somebody in this capacity who has seen, uh, just what this can do. And so you, you really heard from the medical standpoint where he's saying uh, that it just would not make sense because of the generational households that we have here, the amount of people that could be affected. Uh, because you're right, Yanji, there are a lot of people who think that uh, you get the tests, I mean, you, you get COVID, you get cured, you get the antibodies and you'll be fine. Uh, but also the damaging effect that that could have on our uh, state economy and tourism. And he, he's you're just worried about the positioning and the reputation the state would have if we do go down that path. And, and we're seeing what's happening with places like Florida uh, with those areas surging. And so uh, he also talked about, you know, Japan being a, a great starting point for the tourism uh, opening once again. And so we'll see if we do see that Japanese tourists and visitors begin arriving sooner than maybe the others. Yeah, I mean, that, that definitely sounds like a ray of hope for a lot of people who want to get those visitors back and get visitors back safely. So that is a good thing to hear about. We'll, of course, be watching to see when they release a timeline for when that could possibly happen. Uh, this was an unusual broadcast. Usually we're Mondays and Wednesdays. And so uh, yesterday we were not on because the hurricane, of course, um, a lot of state offices were closed and uh, things just didn't line up yesterday. 
But that does mean we will be back tomorrow and we will be switching back to the topic that we had laid out for this month, which of course is politics. Um, and we are going to be talking about the Honolulu mayor's race and also about uh, voting by mail. That's right, a lot of changes happening, uh, you know, coincidentally with COVID and people being asked to stay in and avoid large groups. Uh, so voting has changed and Hawaii is voting by mail. We're gonna be talking to Director Nago uh, from the elections office about that, about some of the changes Many people have already received their ballots in the mail. Some important reminders that you need to uh, really make sure you do when you do vote, uh, some of the stations that you can drop off. So we're looking forward to talking to him. We'll also be talking to Gordon Pang from the Honolulu Star Advertiser. Of course, he's done a great job of sort of recapping and taking us through this political year, so to speak, and breaking down the numbers. A, a recent polling happened over the weekend where the Star Advertiser revealed its poll of the Honolulu mayor's race. And so we'll be talking to him about those numbers uh, and really the, the impact that that could have moving forward in this election. Yeah, and if you are not familiar with the candidates, we did interview uh, six of the 15 folks running for uh, Honolulu mayor, and that is archived. There's a link in the show notes, and it's also archived on the paper's main page. Um, you may have missed that poll over the weekend because all eyes were on Douglas, um, but that is a very comprehensive poll, and it's showing Rick Blangiardi and Colleen Hanabusa kind of neck and neck for first place, um, but 20% undecided. So if you're among those 20%, you haven't chosen your candidate yet, uh, go back and watch those interviews because we did spend a half an hour with each of those candidates, uh, really getting their thoughts on COVID, on homelessness, on rail, all of these hot button issues, uh, affordable housing, uh, and getting to know them on a personal level as well. So uh, that was very enjoyable for us, and we hope it was very informative for you as well. That's right. So we're looking again forward to that conversation happening tomorrow at 1030, and then we are also trying to secure, we know that COVID, again, top of mind for many people, we are trying to get the governor uh, confirmed for next week. We'll keep you posted on that. Um, but again, we encourage all of you to continue to stay connected here to the platforms of the Honolulu Star Advertiser. Again, we will see you right back here tomorrow at 1030 for another edition of Spotlight Hawaii. We want to thank once again our sponsors, the Office of Elections, for making this conversation possible. And for all of you, for your many comments and questions, we appreciate the input and we appreciate the questions. And we hope we'll see you right back here tomorrow. Aloha. Aloha.